0: This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of the ON30 Annual. As the publication dedicated to O-scale narrow-gauge model railroading, you'll find exclusive features and photos in the ON30 Annual from Karsten's publications. Welcome to the Model Railway Show. I'm Trevor Marshall. And
1: I'm Jim Martin. As podcasts go, ours is a short commute, not a cross-country journey. But we promise your ride with us today will be a refreshing, entertaining, and informative one. But just before we get to our guests, Trevor and I have big news to announce. The good folks at Train Life have found a special place on their shelves for the Model Railway Show. If you're new to the
0: program or failed to download earlier editions of our show, you'll be able to listen to every one of them on the Train Life website website. Look for the links on our own website, themodelrailwayshow.com. Our thanks to the Train Life team, John Pastana, Tasha Oates, and David Cox for making this happen. While you're talking up our show with your friends, do our friends at Train Life a favor and join their large and growing community of railway enthusiasts. Want to know more? Well, have a listen to episode 17, in which Train Life founder John Pastana was my guest. You'll find it in our new archive. Now, to our regularly scheduled
1: program, our guests today are going to talk about capturing space, one in a camera, the other in the train room. Later in the show, Mike Brock will tell us how he's captured the majesty of Union Pacific Sherman Hill in a way that does not compromise the look of the scenery
0: or of those giant articulated locomotives. But first, Jim speaks with a man whose layout building skills and photographic byline should be familiar to everyone. Paul
1: Dolkus. If you read it all, you already know the name Paul Dolkus. Paul, in addition to being an accomplished model railroader, is a highly skilled photographer. He's Combat Publishing's go-to guy when a layout has to be photographed for a feature article. Paul has traveled far and wide with his photographic equipment, shooting the finest layouts. His words and pictures have appeared in too many model railroader articles to mention, and he's a frequent contributor to Great model railroads and model railroad planning. Paul's work most recently appeared in the October MR, and his latest layout endeavor, the Baltimore Harbor District, was the cover story in the 2010 edition of Model Railroad Planning. Paul is a contributing author to the book, Scenery by the Seasons, and his previous layout was the star of Volume 46 of Alan Keller's video series, Great Model Railroads. We could talk to Paul about so many things, but this time out, We'd like to focus mostly on his photographic skills. Paul, welcome to the Model Railway Show. Well, thank you. Can I say, just before we get into this, uh, your old Boston and Maine New Hampshire division layout, which was in the December 95 MR, was an inspiration to me. I took away a lot of ideas on gracefully moving trains through backdrops, and I think you've really shown uh, the way to doing effective late-autumn scenery. So uh, thank you for the old layout, and I'm looking forward to more creative ideas with your new Baltimore Harbor District. Okay, good. How is it, you? came to be the person Kambach so often assigns to photographing other people's layouts.
2: Well, I had a long relationship with them. Uh, I guess I submitted the first article in 75. Uh, but part of it is I'm not only a model railroader, but photography was a hobby of mine. Uh, my father... That was his hobby, and he always had some nice cameras around the house. So using his guidance and so forth, I started taking pictures. It was first prototype pictures, but then I went to Model railroads. So on assignments, well, sometimes they call me. Sometimes I see a great layout and I call them. So you know, it's a it's a two way street, and we know each other, so it works out very
1: nicely. Yeah, I think actually Andy sperandio uh, referenced that in the uh, new edition of Great Model Railroads. Uh, I think you and he were at a layout at the same time, and thus grew another article right there. That's right. Yeah, it
2: may just be that spontaneous. Yeah, so nothing magic about
1: this. Okay, well. <laughs> are all the layouts you shoot naturally photogenic, or is that where your skills come into play?
2: I wish I could say that. Oh, yeah, we shoot pictures and we make them look great. But the camera doesn't lie. But sometimes, you know, you put the camera in the right position, you can cover up some things that maybe aren't the best. But in general, when we look at a layout, it should be above average. It doesn't necessarily have to be complete, but it should have five or six finished scenes. You know, everything should should have the ballast in place. The cars can't just be shamed plastic. It needs to be accomplished. Not all layouts are that way, and people getting started, they're maybe not photogenic, and we can't make them photogenic. So that's really the criteria for uh, picking a layout.
1: It's not a bad guideline, though. I mean, we all have to start somewhere, but work on a scene with a thought to thinking how it would photograph, correct? Right.
2: (laughs) I think if you, you look at some of the layouts in MR, Great Model Railroads, and you say, Well, I think mine is as good as that. Well, you're probably a candidate for an article.
1: What were some of your harder assignments?
2: I think ones that have tight... Spaces and bad backgrounds, that sort of thing. One that was probably the biggest challenge was John Armstrong. You know, he was the legendary layout planner, and he had tight aisles. He never threw anything away; it was just piled up under the uh, benchwork. It was always in the way. His the electrical system in the house was not good. Uh, <laughs> with those five hundred watt photo floods, you were just kept burning fuses, and these these weren't circuit breakers; these are fuses. <laughs> the you know, ones that screwed in. And so that was, it was just grim. And, and the layout wasn't, well, I talked about, well, you need to have all your ballast, you need to have your seam redone and so on. Well, you know, he... He could kind of. uh, It was John Armstrong that we photographed. The the
1: man was an icon. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh,
2: normally you can do photographic layout. I'm talking a general layout thing. Uh, You know, here's my layout and how I build it and so on. Here's the background on it. Normally, you can do that in uh, six, seven, eight hours, something like that. But with John, it was three days. And the good thing is, John was the world's greatest storyteller. He would just tell wonderful stories. So, you know, you, you just spend a lot of time doing photography. You listen to these wonderful stories that he told a tough assignment in terms of the mechanics of doing the photography, but it was most enjoyable, and frankly, it ended up in the mid-90s being a uh, three-part story.
1: Well, you know, he was a foremost layout designer, but uh, what you, what I'm hearing from you it was uh, do as I say, not do as I do. John's humor came through in his writing, so I guess he'd find these stories about himself amusing. Oh,
2: right? uh, uh, he, he was just the greatest.
1: Okay. Well, what are the design considerations? I think you've already touched on these a bit, Paul. But when people start to build a layout, what are some of the design considerations they should build into to ensure easier photography?
2: I think photography may be the secondary consideration. I mean, I think you've got enough issues, you know, trying to squeeze track in and so forth. You know, I want to run trains or operate and get this, get that in and so forth. So I wouldn't really spend a lot of time thinking about that because what you envision is a great photograph is not necessarily will be a great photograph and what I think is a great photograph is not necessarily what you think is a great photo and so on and so forth. I guess in the most basic form, maybe you provide for a low angle view where, you know, you can get kind of get the camera down at what a if you were in the railroad yard looking at at a locomotive, it would be slightly towering above you. Maybe removable structures where you can get it out of the way to reveal something else. And wide aisles. I mentioned Armstrong had tight aisles. Uh, I I love to get the equipment in, the tripod and the lights and so forth. It's nice to have that. But Build your layout, make it the best you can, and the photography will
1: take care of itself. Have you ever pulled up some guy's trees to get a a better picture, oh, absolutely mm-hmm. that, and telephone poles and so forth and uh yeah, most people don't
2: don't think twice. Oh yeah, do it. You know very quickly whether you can get away with that or not.
1: You seem to downplay photography uh, in building a layout. You say you say enjoy the layout, but I'm wondering, does your eye as a photographer help you in designing layout scenes?
2: Maybe subconsciously and so forth. But I, again, I think it's a secondary thing. You know, I I look at what I think is a pleasing arrangement of elements, and I certainly want backdrops to cover unsightly walls. I photographed layouts where there were uh, cinder. Block walls, or even one cellar where there was uh, rock walls, so mm-hmm. that really limits some of the photography. So if you just have a plane, it doesn't have to be blue with nice clouds on it, but if it's just kind of neutral, that helps a lot in being able to do
1: photography. Do you ever use Photoshop to compensate for things like cinder block walls or anything like that?
2: Yeah, that is the wonderful thing about digital photography is that you can take out a wall, but at least, I don't, very seldom do I actually put a real sky (laughs) vision in there.
1: But a field of blue, something like
2: that. Yeah, I just kind of blew and I might fuzz it up a little bit and so forth. That's one of the advantages of the digital thing. If you have a corner, you know, everybody talks about cove corners. You don't need to bother with those anymore.
1: No, just get rid of the uh, shadow. Exactly. What skills from the film era are still important? I mean, the digital revolution, I think, happened probably five or ten years faster than everyone thought it would. Lighting and composition, I guess they are still important regardless of the photographic medium, correct?
2: Yeah. If you were a film photographer and you understand you know, the basic things, F-stop, shutter speeds, and so forth, you'll have no trouble fitting into uh, digital photography. I think with digital cameras today, the automation makes it uh, easier to capture a decent image and the ability to photograph under a variety of lighting yeah. conditions like Most layouts are illuminated with fluorescent lights. Well, with film... Even with conversion filters, they still look kind of green or blue or, you know, mm-hmm. it's off, off color, didn't have any intensity. With digital photography, and it takes care of those problems. We have advanced, and the quality is certainly equal to, if not better, than film. And ultimately, in publication, everything gets converted to a digital image anyway. So,
1: What's the basic photographic kit one should own to take a decent layout photo?
2: You certainly can use a point-and-shoot camera just to do, you know, record shots and things like that. And I say with the color balance and white balance control, do very well. The problem with those is that they're almost completely automated. It's hard to control the depth of field and the focus point. The autofocus will focus on exactly what you don't want it to, invariably. So I would recommend a single lens reflex. And you can get those for just a little more than what a, a good point and shoot camera is. You need a tripod to hold it because you're going to want to stop down for longer exposures, and you probably want photo floods to provide more dramatic lighting. Most fluorescent lights, you know, are just very diffused, and there's no shadows to speak of. It's nice to be able to try to replicate sunlight with that. So, you get those basic things, and none of those things are expensive, although you can certainly get cameras and tripods and floodlights that cost a billion dollars, but you also can do it on a budget.
1: Okay, Paul, we're running out of time, but I, I want to put this- this question to you. I I can think of one famous layout I visited where the host did not allow visitors to bring in their cameras. And I think it may have been due to the fact that some elements of the train room were unfinished. Now, I had no problem understanding his concerns about carelessly framed photos ruining the illusion he had created in the magazines. Your thoughts on this. Are such concerns reasonable to your way of thinking?
2: I guess I can understand why somebody might want to prohibit photography. But if I have an open house, guys come in and half of them have cameras. I'm just amazed the number of people that do take pictures, and they just snap away. And I thought, oh my goodness, <laughs> just, what do they do with those things? I'll tell you a story. My uh, the regional NRA publication I had an open house, and later I saw a publication, and there was a picture in there, and I said, yeah, why do they bother to publish these pictures? I mean, I, I yeah, it's just an awful layout. It's, it's just the angle of the photography. is just, it's just terrible. And ultimately, the you know, reproduction was just bad. It was like a Xerox or something like that. And then I looked again. It was my layout. Looking at, and I didn't even recognize it. So, so I can understand why somebody say don't do that. And particularly now, if they want to stick them on the web or something like that, I caution people: you can take them for your own use, but don't put them on the web or don't
1: think about publishing. That sounds like a good compromise. Yeah, Paul. Yeah, I wish we could talk longer, but I'm afraid we're out of time. Uh, thanks for being with us here today. Okay, thank you. All the best. I look forward to seeing much more of your work i I've, I've just got my uh issue of uh, great model railroads i see there's at least a couple of articles with your byline in there so i'm gonna have to start reading again okay okay uh, we remind our listeners to visit the links attached to this interview and again thanks to paul Dolkas.
0: Thanks, guys. Good photographic tips from one of the hobby's masters. Yeah, and given to a guy who can't
1: snap his fingers, let alone a decent photograph. Hopefully, some of Paul's good advice will rub off on me. Finding our show is a snap. Once you're at the modelrailwayshow.com why not noodle around on our website for a while and discover all the different ways you can listen to us, including accessing past shows from trainlife.com.
0: Also, be sure to visit our Flickr gallery, where you can view our ever-growing album of photographs from our ever-growing portfolio of guests. And be sure to check our gift shop where you can suit up and drink up while proudly displaying the Model Railway Show logo.
1: Next on the show, giant snakes aren't the only things that have been introduced to the state of Florida. If you know where to look, you can find some pretty big trains snaking their way through a certain enthusiast layout room.
0: Here is Trevor. There's just something about big steam locomotives that capture the imagination of model railway enthusiasts. Hobby manufacturers have certainly supplied many examples in miniature, well out of proportion to their numbers on the real railroads. And depending on when exactly you're listening to this episode, you may be making wishes for an articulated locomotive to show up in your stocking or under your tree, or perhaps you're looking at your new model and wondering, what now? Well, everybody has their favorites. There's no arguing that the king of steam was the Union Pacific's big boy. Alco built just 25 examples of this 4884 monster between 1941 and 1944. But hundreds, if not thousands, of models have ended up on layouts since then. But if you like big steam power, or even big diesel power for that matter, what does it really take to build a layout worthy of it? Beyond generous track standards, there's an appearance issue, because a big boy's going to look pretty silly in command of a six-car local freight. Well, one person who knows about this firsthand is Mike Brock. He models the Union Pacific's Sherman Hill in HO scale. Mike's layout was featured in the March 2002 issue of Model Railroader and the 2002 edition of Model Railroad Planning. Mike is also the organizer of the increasingly popular Prototype Rails Convention held each January in Cocoa Beach, Florida. He's here to shed some light on the challenges of building a layout that can run, well, pretty much anything. Welcome to the Model Railway Show, Mike. Right. Now, you're in Florida. That's a state not known for its mountain railroading. How did you end up modeling the UP in Wyoming?
3: Well, actually, it probably comes down to the fact that I decided back in 1978 to go out and actually just watch a steam excursion being pulled by UP's uh, 8444, as it was numbered at the time. That led me to return to Wyoming several times, and at the same time, I had noticed, I think it was in Prototype Model or Magazine, someone that was modeling real places, a real railroad. And it got my uh, thinking, well, maybe it would be a good idea to model in someplace in Wyoming. And the union- Pacific, and uh, that's how it all started.
0: You obviously enjoy the large steam power because your layout features it, but what do you think modelers find fascinating about articulated steam, and, and in particular, the big boy?
3: Well, you know, that's a good question, and it's kind of interesting because I find, in my experience, that about as many people that do find large steam locomotives interesting and all, about an equal number find little tiny locomotives to be interesting, particularly narrow gauge and stuff like that. But certainly large engines do attract attention, and probably just because of their size.
0: There have been quite a few models of this iconic piece of steam superpower over the years. Do you have any favorites? What are you using on your own layout?
3: Well, I started with the original PFM version, but uh, moved pretty quickly to key imports when they came out with their first Big Boy in 1980, as I recall. And since then, I've acquired a couple more key versions of the Big Boy. And then the Precision, Craft, the offshoot of Broadway Limited, and the more recent, version. So I have three or four different versions of them, and they all are pretty well compatible in appearance and
0: operation. You've just proven what I've said about how many models have been produced over the years. There have been quite a few. Now, your layout represents Sherman Hill. For those who don't understand what that is, can you tell us a bit about your layout, what you're representing in HO scale?
3: Well, Sherman Hill exists between Cheyenne, Wyoming and Laramie, Wyoming. It's a distance of about 56 miles. And the highest elevation is around 8,000 feet, from Cheyenne's 5,000-plus feet to Laramie's about 6,000-plus feet. And uh, the grades are about 1.55% on the main line that was built before the additional Track 3 was put in, which reduced the grade to 0.82%. So while it isn't the most steep grade in the United States, it's a significant grade because UP was moving so much stuff. And that's what I did. I Actually, to tell you the truth, I looked at two other spots before I decided upon Sherman Hill. And one was around Green River, Wyoming, and one was in the Wasatch out of Ogden, Utah. And I finally decided on Sherman because there was more photos available. Because I wanted to do models of real scenes. And it's hard to do that you know if you don't have photos and eventually we went out and did a lot of excursion chasing and video filming and whatnot and did a lot of photos and in fact i use photos as part of the background
0: now what sort of train links are you running on your layout
3: When I originally designed the layout, I wanted to be able to operate with a locomotive and a 20-car train. And as with most people, when you build something originally, you decide later on, well, maybe I'll increase the size of that. And uh, now I'm running 35-car trains from time to time. But I do have to revert down to 20-car trains at certain times in order to get into passing tracks.
0: So I guess that obviously has affected your layout design. When I look at your layout plan, I see that it really is designed to put large steam power. Through its space is much more than many other plans that are out there. You've got plenty of yard space to build long trains that such locomotives demand. You have the spectacular scenery with the grades to run the trains over and really make the models work. It strikes me that you're trying to capture the UP as a rail fan would see it, and certainly by your describing how you got interested in this, that kind of supports it. Is that what your goal was with the layout?
3: Well, I have a little problem with that term "rail fan," and I've heard it many times a layout built for railfan purposes. Being a railfan, I didn't really pay much attention to the lineup of various scenes in a linear way. I go out and I see an interesting scene and I there's that steam train is going to come to it and I'm going to go shoot that scene. I don't care if the next scene that I do is in the order of say east and west direction or north, south, whatever. I just go shoot the scenes that I think are, are interesting. But when, when I design the layout, the scenes are linear. That is, they follow sequentially as they would when you're out looking at the real railroad. So I have a little problem with that term, but obviously I wanted to have a layout that depicted the real railroad and operated like the railroad did that's the way I look at
0: it. Now, unless you're modeling one of New York's self-contained harbor railroads, layout planning is always about compromises. And I suspect that in order to run large locomotives in what's really a modest space that you have, you've had to make some compromises. You've set some pretty generous standards for curvature and turnouts. Can you start by telling us what your minimums are and why you picked those?
3: Well, the minimum radius on the main line is 48 inches, which is a little bit large for most people. But the driver on that Incidentally, it was not Big boys, but was 412-2s. When I originally purchased the Sunset 412-2 made by San Hongsa, it really didn't like curvatures less than 44 inches. So the 48-inch radius curves were really driven by the 412-2s, but all other motive power and particularly passenger trains really loved that large radius. As far as turnouts, my main turnouts are number 10s and number 12s. And I built, I'd say, 95% of the turnouts in the land, because turnouts of that size were not available when I built the land, probably aren't available today. The compromise there is, with distances like that, measurements like that, you end up reducing your aisle space a little bit. In other words, had I chosen, say, 36-inch radius curves, I would have had more room for aisle space. So it's always, as you say, it's always a compromise.
0: Now those number ten and number twelve turnouts was that for the four twelve twos as well, or
3: oh yeah, they really liked large turnouts like that. But at the same time, the appearance, of large turnouts is much superior to smaller ones. In fact, you'll find that a good yard turnout might have a frog number of a number 7 or number 6, never a number 5 or something like that. And so it gives you a better appearance. It gives you better operation.
0: Did you do some experiments with the four twelve twos before you committed to the layout? Or uh, I guess what I'm asking here is what sort of advice do you have for other people looking to build layouts that are going to host large steam power like this?
3: I had a friend who had a 412.2, and he told me you're not going to be able to operate a 412.2 in less than 48 inch radius curve. Now it turns out he's incorrect because I could get it through a 44 occasionally. I did some experimenting. I could get one through the 36, but it didn't like it. And since then, I've acquired another four twelve two that has a little bit better lateral play in the drivers. And it can get through the 36 without that much trouble. But that was the original driver with 412
0: You mentioned that you don't like the term a rail fan layout, but you are trying to model prototype scenes. And I guess having those larger radius curves and those large turnout numbers also help make the scene that you're modeling look like what you're seeing in the pictures, doesn't it?
3: Well, sir, Certainly when you're modeling something like uh, Union Pacific in the Wyoming area because there's so much less curvature. If you were modeling something like Norfolk and Western, which I've done a lot of video on up in the Roanoke and Asheville, North Carolina area, it's a lot of curvature. You could get away with that if you were doing smaller radius curves, I think. Visually, it wouldn't be as much of a problem, but when you're modeling... Larger, less curvature scenes like I do on Sherman Hill, then you need larger turnouts and whatever to depict
0: it well. I mentioned the Prototype Rails Convention off the top, and I mentioned that because you're heavily involved with that. Now, we'll have a link to the convention on our website, but can you give us a plug for the meet? What's the Prototype Rails meet all about?
3: Well, Prototype Rails is what's known. Commonly as an RPM meet, and at Prototype Rails we'll have about 80 clinics. We'll have about a thousand models on display, and we have a lot of fun. That's the bottom line: fun.
0: How long has that one been going on in Cocoa Beach now?
3: Well, we started in 2001,
0: and this next
3: year will be the 12th one, and we'll keep moving on.
0: That's excellent. And I know, having talked to a number of people who attend Prototype Modelers meets, they really look forward to Cocoa Beach not only for the good times down there and the excellent modeling, but also the fact that it's Florida in January, which is usually a whole lot better than where they're coming from. So thank you again for joining us on the Model Railway Show today, Mike, and good luck with the next prototype modelers meet, and thanks for telling us about Large Steam Power today. Oh, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Mike Brock joined us from his home in Florida. Thanks, guys. Mike has done a remarkable
1: job. However, Trevor, I'm hearing some disturbing news from Florida. I hear some irresponsible modelers disenchanted with the size and upkeep of their big boys are releasing them into the Everglades where they're preying on smaller native species such as Atlantic Coast Pacifics.
0: Oh, very droll, Jim. Why don't you just head back to the basement for a while? Do you know who will be on our next show? haven't got a clue. I know you haven't got a clue, but the question was, who do we have for our next show?
1: Well, actually, I have a pretty good idea, but the interview hasn't been recorded yet, and I don't want to make any rash promises. Let's just say my interview is likely going to be with a guy
0: who takes an ironing board to train shows. Oh, great. Now I'm really sorry I pressed you on that. Well, while Jim sorts his laundry, I'll be chatting with Tom Piccirillo. He's president of Micromark, but he joins me to talk about his Somerset County traction system and why you might want to consider running trains under wire. Well, we can't leave without thanking our three resident
1: snake charmers, Dave Woodhead with his mesmerizing music, Otto Vondrak for coiling us in his web, and Chris Abbott who keeps the sound waves slithering your way. For Trevor Marshall, I'm Jim Martin. Thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show.